Well, Lord God, we ask that in studying this vision of the end of all things, that you will give us hope and certainty for the present time. Through your son, Jesus, we ask. Amen. So I, you know, this is, of course, the very end of the book of Revelation that we're looking at on Sunday. And it's not just the very end, but also the very end of all of Scripture. In studying, I had trouble keeping my Bible open because the last page kept wanting to flap over. And what you'll see in, in Revelation chapter 19 through 22, those last four, or really the last three and a half chapters, starting at um, 19.11, those last little bits of Revelation could be described as the bookend of Scripture with another bookend at the other end being Genesis 1 through 3. And what you see is that um, here at the end, um, we see themes from the beginning not only brought back, but we see um, sin being completely wiped out, no longer existing. And just as sin is wiped out and no longer exists because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, then what you also see is that the things that accompany sin, the consequences of sin, are also gone. And so it's this wonderful ending, just as sin entered the world in Genesis 3, um, you see it being removed and completely eradicated from this world as the creation is remade. And so just as there's a creation, do you see how I'm going concentric circles out? Just as there is um, creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, so then you see the new creation in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. So that's actually what we're looking at right now in um, these few verses from chapter 21 and then from chapter 22. We're looking at the new creation of all things. And Revelation as a book, this whole vision, Revelation is just what it sounds like, a revealing of what will happen in the end, an opening of the curtain, and the Apostle John on, uh, on the island of Patmos in exile sees a vision of what's going on in heaven all throughout the book of Revelation. He has these visions, and this is his final vision. Um, and as the book, it, it, as a book as a whole, when you look at you know, what happens in between the two bookends, you know, Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 19 through 22, you see that um, Revelation as a whole book relies a lot on the book of Daniel. Um, it's in the sense that it's the same genre. John um, sees things in the same way that Daniel has seen things. And the Revelation, the apocalyptical visions of what the end will look like, all of those somewhat incomprehensible things that people want to pin down to a time or a date or a location or a specific event, human history, all of those things are apocalyptic, um, the genre of apocalyptic scripture um, that Daniel also is, finds himself in the same genre. But what I would say is that here in these last three chapters of Revelation, um, Daniel and that genre of apocalyptic literature or genre of apocalyptic scripture, really, because literature implies that it's not true. Whenever I say literature, you have to understand, I mean, the literature that is the most true of all. Um, but here, what Revelation does here is Revelation is drawing, yes, it's the bookend to Genesis 1 through 3, but it's also drawing on the visions and the prophecies that are seen in the other prophets, not necessarily in apocalyptic um, scripture, but in Ezekiel, 
in Joel, in Zechariah, and even in Isaiah in chapter 60. Um, And I'll go back to that in a little bit because there's one of those visions in particular, one of those prophecies that um, has occurred to the prophet Ezekiel at the very end of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. There's this several chapters long vision that he has that is so remarkably similar to this vision that it's important for us to look at it. So we'll look at that in a little bit. But here, um, this vision of the new creation really happens after John sees the great judgment in chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. That's in Revelation 19, verse 11 and 12. So you see that this judgment happens. Jesus, the judge, there judges every single human being that has ever been or ever will be, or from now on. Um, And the judgment is twofold. It's according to what they've done. Books are opened in which the deeds are known. But then it appears as though there is this other book called the Book of Life. And it's later on in our our passage called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Lamb's Book of Life is opened, even as those other books full, full of the deeds of all human beings were opened. And it says it in verse um, 15, If anyone's name was not found written in the Book of Life, he was thrown into the lake of fire intense. Bad news. <laughs> or good news. <laughs> good news and bad news. Um, if your name is written in the book of life, you're not thrown into the lake of fire there. And it says later on, the lake of fire is the second death. And so though there is discussion about what is done, the deeds of human beings, it's you get the sense that there's something different with this book of life. Something different is going on with this book of life. And so what we see beginning in chapter 21, verse 1, is what has happened to those whose names were in the book of life. We know what happens when the name is not in the book of life in chapter chapter 19, verse 15. But now, chapter 21, to the end, we see what happens for those whose names are written in the book of life. And this vision is incredible. It's like technicolor, isn't it? I think, of, um, I think of it sort of having that quality of old Technicolor films. You know, sort of not quite um, the way our color films are today. There's an interesting quality about it. It's almost unreal and yet hyper-real. Um, we had an artist in my church growing up who attempted <laughs> to, um, to illustrate these passages, illustrate all of Revelation. It was quite an accomplishment. Um, But the illustration of this vision in particular is incredible. And um, John tells us what he sees. He sees, and he sees it, he he describes this seeing of it twice, almost like the way we have a double description of the creation in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 2. Remember how that happens at the very beginning of Scripture? Well, here at the very end, you see this double description of, of what heaven is like, what life is like for those whose names are written in the book. And what he describes is not what our culture would tell us that heaven is like. I think of TV shows, Highway to Heaven, and 
all sorts of other unhelpful but cute and sentimental pictures of heaven. I think of um, a, you know, human beings with wings on, getting halos, and sitting on a cloud, playing the harp, singing. Singing, I think there will be, but I don't think we'll be sitting on clouds, or we won't get wings and somehow not become human. Um, but John gives us a vision of what does happen, and what will happen is that heaven comes down onto earth. So that heaven is not a place in the clouds, in the sky, but it's rather, the new Jerusalem is rather, in the place where the redeemed will live eternally, is a city, a square city, that's described in such amazing beauty, and the verses preceding our verses for Sunday will say that there are 12 foundations, and the 12 foundations are um, matched by 12 different stones, precious stones. And those precious stones match the 12 stones found in the high priest's breastplate back in ancient Israel. There are these 12 foundations, and they represent the 12 apostles. There are these 12 gates, three on either of the four sides, and those match the 12 tribes of Israel. And the, the whole city, when you look at the dimensions that are given in, um, in chapter 21, the dimensions are, are enormous for a city. Um, uh, uh, 1,400 miles on each side of this cube. And this city made of precious gems and precious stones that's glorious. And not just glorious, but radiant. The gems and the gold, all of that is meant to um, evoke this image of light being um, born through substance. How do we look at gems and at gold? They reflect light, don't they, in a way that's dazzling. I remember a friend getting engaged, and um, she never thought much of diamonds. Then she was driving once, and when she got engaged, she would just sort of like gaze. <laughs> You've seen a woman do this, haven't you? Like, oh, gaze at her hand. And she was driving once, and she actually got into a car accident because she was mesmerized by her own newly acquired engagement ring. Her diamond had dazzled her. Well, this city is dazzling in that way. It reflects light. And the light is specifically tied into God's presence. Light throughout scripture is always tied into the very being of God. And it's a a symbol that we can understand, that we can grasp because we see light in our natural world. It's a way of describing God's holiness and his majesty and his glory is through light. And we see every vision of the throne in heaven involves light, bedazzling light. So here we see this dazzling city coming down out of the sky, out of heaven. And this city is not just um, a city, but it's also a garden. It's not just a place where lots of people dwell really closely, but there um, we get the sense that there's also some living green in this city. We talk, it will talk later about the tree of life and the water of life flowing from the center of the city. Well, in this perfected creation that is in fact not, um, not something other than what we know now, this is sort of difficult to understand, but rather the perfect recreation of what we know. Um, It's not this new creation, this heaven come down on earth. This is a new earth, an earth that is completely remade. 
And one of the things that I find exciting about this is that um, the places that I love now that are good in this earth um, will still be there in that new earth. I really believe that, that um, the people and the places, um, the people who are in the book of life and the places um, that we've known on this earth will be perfected, will be remade with their original glory, and then also with human presence. I used to look out over um, Pittsburgh, where I lived for several, several years, and you can go to the top of one of these mountains, and you can look out over the city, and Pittsburgh is a city where two rivers merge into one river, and just like Birmingham, it was built up during the industrial area, era, and so there were, you know, there are kind of pockmarks on the landscape. There are um, furnaces and mills and... Um, burnt out parts of the landscape and places where um, human beings have destroyed the natural habitat of um, the forest and the river. And yet looking out over this mountain, I always wanted to imagine it the way those first explorers, you know, we'd learned a lot about history growing up. Um, you learn about Fort Pitt in Pittsburgh, Fort Duquesne, and all the different um, permutations of early colonial history and then what it was like later. But I always thought about those first explorers, what that must they have seen as they looked out over that same mountain, Mount Washington, over the city, what would be the city where the rivers converged, where there was beautiful, lush, green trees and rolling hills. Um, and I could only see it with humanity um, planted in it. And yet in heaven, I think of that same spot, that in the new creation, that same spot will have both the presence of humanity and all the good things that we brought to earth. And yet all the bad things will be taken away. The eyesores will be taken away. And yet it probably won't be pristine green because there would be people living in it. So it'll be a combination of human presence and yet human presence unmarred by sin because sin and the effects of sin will have been reversed at that time in every single place that you can imagine, your favorite places on earth, um, with sin and the effects of sin removed. And so that broader aspect of the perfected creation we see true here in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, so I mentioned earlier that this um, draws from, and you can see that Ezekiel's vision influenced John, and that John is seeing essentially the same thing, and yet it's a different thing. Ezekiel, at the end of his prophecy, beginning in chapter 40 of Ezekiel, and it starts at the beginning of chapter 40, and it goes on for eight chapters, this vision that he has. And his vision is primarily a vision of the new temple. But he begins by saying, In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. And it's a city that he had seen. He had been set down by the Lord on a very high mountain, and he saw a city south of the mountain. And then he goes on to describe what he sees in the city. He describes especially the temple that he sees in the city. And there are so many things between what he sees and what John sees. John, too, is on a mountain, and he looks out and sees a city. And it's a city uh, in the future, an eschatological city. And this city also, for Ezekiel, has 12 gates on each of the four sides that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. 
this city and the temple in it have significant measurements. There's um, an angel with a measuring rod for Ezekiel that comes and measures everything, and there's theological significance. Same too with John in, in chapter 21. There's an angel that comes and measures the city, and there's theological significance to the measurements of the city for both of these visions. In both of these visions, there's a voice coming from the throne in the city, the voice of God. We see this in Ezekiel 43, verse 6 through 7. And going on in Ezekiel in 40, chapter 47, it goes on for a long time, this vision. In Ezekiel's vision, there is also water flowing out from God's presence in the city, trickling out and trickling out to the countryside, and getting bigger and deeper and um, more lush and um, more effusive, this water that flows out from God's presence. There's also in this city that Ezekiel sees in chapter 47, he sees trees on either side of this river that flows out from the presence of God. And those trees have fruit every month of the year. It never stops bearing fruit, these special trees. And these special trees have leaves that bring healing to the people who live in that city. And the name of the city, this is the very last part of Ezekiel's vision in chapter 48. He said, the name of the city is God is there. God is there in that city that Ezekiel sees. Don't you hear the echoes from John's vision? Don't you hear the similarities? John too sees a city with the 12 gates. The city um, where he sees it from a mountain. He hears a voice from the throne at the beginning of chapter 21. He sees in our chapter, in this passage from 22, he sees water. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. John sees the same thing. He sees this river, and the river flows out from the very presence of God. And yet in this city, the throne of God is not just the throne of God, but it's also the throne of the Lamb. Something that if had Ezekiel even seen that in his city, in his vision, he would not have understood what it meant. And we'll get back to that. Um, we see in chapter 22, this is a veritable new Eden. The vision of both Ezekiel and John talks about the tree of life. Remember how in Genesis, once Adam and Eve had sinned, what happened? God barred them from the tree of life. He cast them out of Eden, lest they eat the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Now that they had knowledge and now that they had sinned, sinned and sin had entered the creation they could not live forever they had to die well here in this new city the tree of life is still there and yet it's not barred from the humans that live there those redeemed humans have access to the tree of life both for its fruit which is good and goes all year long and then also for its healing um, in that city, um, there's also the water of life, and that has echoes of John, 
John in his gospel talks, um, and we see Jesus specifically claiming and saying that um, he, ha- he is the source of living water. He is the st- source of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. So you see echoes of that also here in John. We see that from the very presence of God, from the throne, the water goes out. One last detail of this amazing picture of heaven on earth um, is that there is no more darkness, no night. I think of um, one of my favorite places in the world, which is um, a place, I don't know if you ever go camping. We, uh, my family goes camping, but it's kind of old style camping, like as if we were, there's an old cabin that we go to, and it's really not camping because you're not out in a tent. Rather, um, as my allergies will attest, you get to stay in a musty, musty old house where um, little critters live there most of the year round, and then we try to clean it out for a couple weeks of the year to live in it. I kind of wonder, is this really the best vacation for us to take? But it's certainly fun to walk around the house with oil lamps and flashlights and things like that. But one of the things that I've always noticed about this place from the time I was a little girl is that as soon as you turn out the last flashlight in the last oil lamp. It is so dark. And the darkness there is unlike any other darkness you've ever... It's so thick. You can't see anything. And you definitely don't want to have to get up in the middle of the night for any reason whatsoever. Um, And I think of that darkness and that that kind of darkness, that kind of night, will be gone. I hope God has a plan for my very... Fair skin, because I get a lot of sunburn. I have a feeling there won't be any sunburn in heaven, but I do like sleeping. I don't know if there will be any sleeping in heaven. Maybe we won't need it. But there's this eternal day. And because the light signifies God's very presence, remember his holiness, his majesty, his glory, his purity, this everlasting light, no night, no darkness, what that means is that there will be no evil Those gates of the city are always open because they need fear nothing. Those who live there fear nothing because nothing can harm them. There is no longer any evil in the world. That helps complete the picture. There is no pain. There is no suffering. There is no illness. There is no strife. There is no violence. There is no death because every single one of those things are effects or consequences of sin in the world, sin in our lives. And so here we, again, with this vision, I'd like to suggest that this whole vision, um, instead of thinking, we often talk, and we often talk, um, and appropriately so, we talk from the pulpit about what we as human beings are saved from. And certainly as we are forgiven our sins, we are also saved from those effects and consequences of sin, even if we only see that in part in this lifetime. There we have the vision of it being complete at the end of all time. But we talk about what we are saved from, um, and yet we don't always look at what we're saved for. And I would suggest that this vision talks about what we are saved for what the rest of eternity will look like, not just once we are forgiven our sins, but once the final judgment is complete and all evil is completely eradicated from the new creation and the world is remade and our hearts are remade and there is no longer any sin even present in us. Right now we live not that way. 
right? Sin is still a very real part of our world. Well, we are saved for this time when there will no longer be any sin. And it sounds kind of, dare I say it, does it sound boring? Does it sound like, well, what will we be doing there, we who believe, we who are saved, we who believe in the Lamb? What will we be doing there? It talks about, John sees, that, um, that there, um, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The servants of God will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There is here a picture of God's great delight in us and a deep fellowship with God for all eternity. That any joy, any um, uh, blessing that we receive from worshiping God, from drawing near to God in faith right now, that we might receive on Sunday mornings, this joy and this contentment in God's healing and powerful presence, this delight, and it's not just our delight in him because our delight in him only follows his delight in us. And how is it that he delights in us? We'll look at that in just a minute. But he delights in us because of his son Jesus. And his delight will go on eternally. Just think about who in your life do you delight in that brings a smile to your face. I hope to God that there is at least one person that cannot fail to bring a smile to your face. Well, that is the kind of delight relationally that God has in us because of Jesus. And that delight will just go on eternally. That joyful delight, that reciprocity of relationship, that dance, that is what we are saved for. And C.S. Lewis talks about this delight and about how this delight is tied into the end of all things and what will happen. Um, because there, remember that life is eternal. Eternal life is possible. And it says at the very end of our passage, um, they will reign forever and ever. It will go on interminably. We who will eat from the tree of life will live eternally with God in that newly created earth, recreated. And C.S. Lewis talks about this, and I think he gets at it very well in his fiction. C.S. Lewis has a great vision of heaven. I love Lewis. I love the way he talks about heaven, both in The Great Divorce, which is a wonderful book, but then also in his Narnia series. The very end, and they're not all... His books aren't perfect, and, you know, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, so I struggle with that. But look at them, I'm like, oh, I want this to be different, or I want that to be different. But he has these beautiful passages, um, and he talks about what happens in the last battle. In the last battle, Narnia, the land of Narnia, is the um, setting for his stories, his series on Narnia. And here there is a new Narnia that's perfect, that is, again, the place where they remember, the characters remember all of the beautiful places they've been that they've loved that are now perfectly recreated. And there they also encounter Aslan, who is the Jesus figure there. And um, as these characters enter into this new Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes, The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. 
And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I like that. I like that because I think it's true. I think that idea of forever and ever and ever is too much for us to bear. And yet, forever and ever and ever in a story where every chapter is better than the last one is something I can look forward to. That's something I can hope for. Um, and something I can look at and say, yeah, okay, I do want that. So how then, we talked before about the book of life. We looked at the book of life in chapter 19, and it's mentioned in ours um, that in this city, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are hard words. Who will be in the city? How do we get in this city? Well, I think if we look back at Ezekiel's vision, we would see, remember this city that Ezekiel saw had so much in common with this city that John sees, this heavenly city on earth, this new creation. And yet, in Ezekiel's city, he spends, remember how I said it was eight chapters long, starting in, verse, in chapter 40, going to chapter 48? He spends several chapters talking about the temple in that new city and the rules of the temple in that city. And the rules were really protection for the people of Israel so that they could enter into relationship with God without being destroyed by his holiness because they were an unclean people. Just like Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I serve a people of... um, a sinful people. And so um, here we see that um, in comparison, in contrast with Ezekiel's city, the vision that Ezekiel sees, something has changed. And this city at the end has no temple. And John says this very clearly. John knew Ezekiel's vision. John knew what Ezekiel saw. And what he sees is completely different because There is no temple. There is no complicated system. There is no marker by which an individual could say, well, I've done well now, so I'm going to get into God's presence. He will approve of me and say, I'm good, I'm I'm cleared. I think of those funny sci-fi movies where you see someone trying to get into that most coveted possession, whether it's James Bond trying to get the jewels or um, Star Trek or Star Wars trying to get the captured princess, and there are all these doors, and there's a little card you need to put through the door to get in, and each level there's this concentric circles of entryway into this place to get what it is that the hero wants. Well, the temple feels like that a lot of times to me, the Old Testament temple and the temple that Ezekiel describes, that get in through this area, then you get in through this area, and then you get in here, and then with the temple what happened was you had to do it all over again. Every time you sinned, you did it all over again. You started, you went back to zero. Um, you, did not pa- you did not collect $200. You went straight back to go or wherever. Sorry, Monopoly. I'm using all my different metaphors. But 
there's this sense in which you could not get in. Um, you could not get into God's presence because you were not, you were not worthy. And what we see in this, new temp- in this new city, there is no temple. There is no system for getting in because there the lamb who was slain is present on the throne. The lamb who was slain is introduced in Revelation 5. We, we meet him and we know based on scripture who this lamb is. Who is this lion of the tribe of Judah that is also a lamb? How could, how could a lion be a lamb? How could God, the Almighty, become part of his own creation? How could the eternal die? And why would God ever want to do that? Well, we know that there is no temple in that city because Jesus himself, both the high priest, as the book of Hebrews says, and the victim, the sacrifice, the lamb that was slain, he is the once and for all sacrifice for sins so that our sins can be forgiven, that everything we've ever said or thought or done that was displeasing to God, that broke the law, that kept us away from God's presence, that has been completely done away with in Jesus' death. The lamb was slain. And so that is how we know that our names are written in that book of life. That we can look to the lamb who was slain and say, he was slain for me so that I might not have to go through each entryway. I might not be able to, since I can't anyway, how wonderfully relieving that I don't have to prove my worth to God. I don't have to have the right key code to get in through the concentric circles of entrance into God's presence. So we are saved from sin through the death of the Lamb, and we are saved for fellowship with God for all eternity. And so then we can say with the writer to the Hebrews, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, We can draw near because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that vision of heaven on earth is for us because our names are written in the book of life. Let's pray. We give thanks and praise to you, O Lamb who was slain, because it is by your blood that we are free, that we are forgiven, and that our names are written in your book. And so we ask, bring us to that day when we will see you face to face. In your name we pray. Amen.